Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Sir, do you know the way to the hospital? Which one? Which one? Heavens, I don't... We're just in from Dallas, and I'm not sure. Excuse me, are you Mr. and Mrs. Sessoms? Of course you are. Samuel Brooks, president of Baylor University. Ah, well, uh, I hope the train ride suited you fine. Listen, fella, it's a pleasure and all, but we don't have time to chat. Our boy's in the hospital. So if you aren't here to give us a ride, then... Sorry. That's why I'm here. Or not for the ride. I felt I had to tell you in person. Spit it out or step aside. We've got to get to the hospital. It's Charles. The injury was more serious than the doctor first thought. This is Unsolved Murder's True Crime Stories. A ParCast original. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is our final episode on the murder of Texas A&M student Charles Sessoms during a 1926 college football game. Last week, we covered the history of the A&M rivalry with Baylor University that culminated in a deadly riot. This week, we'll dive into the aftermath of Sesame's death and a potential conspiracy to protect his killer. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some... The gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. On October 30, 1926, the long-running football rivalry between Baylor University and Texas A&M finally came to a violent head. During halftime at the annual game at the Cotton Palace in Waco, Texas, a car full of Baylor's female students drove onto the field to mock the cadets from A&M. A&M was already losing the game and outnumbered in the stands, so what should have been a harmless tease from their rivals set off a fury in the A&M student section. Angry cadets streamed onto the field for revenge. On the other side of the 50-yard line, the Baylor students saw that the women in the car were in trouble, so they headed down to defend them. 
Within minutes, the entire Cotton Palace football field erupted into a full-blown riot. College students from both sides laid into one another with punches, kicks, and blows from any weapons they could find. Some of the young men wielded chairs they brought from the stands. Others swung scraps of wood salvaged from around the stadium. A Texas A&M senior named Charles Sessoms was one of the boys in the middle of the riot that afternoon. Sessoms was 24, older than most of his fellow Aggies. Later, Sessoms' father would say that his son headed down to the field with only the most noble intentions. He wanted to break up the brawl and calm his younger, hot-headed classmates. But a friend of Sessoms who went to the game with him told a very different story. The student, E.A. Vance, said Sessoms headed down because he was looking for a fight. And that's exactly what he found. As A&M and Baylor pummeled one another on the football field, Sessoms found himself face to face with a boy carrying a big club or piece of wood. The boy took a few small swings at Sessoms, which he easily knocked away with his arms. But then suddenly, the boy cocked the club back over his shoulder and sent the makeshift weapon sailing in a wide arc at Sessoms' head. It connected hard with the boy's left temple and opened a two and a half inch gash above his ear. It immediately started spilling blood. Sessoms collapsed onto the ground, and his assailant, likely realizing what he'd done, slipped off into the chaos of the riot. If Sessoms lost consciousness from the attack, he didn't stay out for long. He was able to walk and talk, or stagger and murmur, a few minutes later, when a pair of his fellow students hauled him to the safety of a nearby first aid station. The nurse on duty gave him a drink that caused him to puke, which he said made him feel better. But Charles Sessoms still needed a doctor. Is there a doctor in the house? Raise your hand, Harry. That usher is looking for a doctor. It's probably just some brawler who got his nose broken. I came here to watch a game, not stitch up a belligerent freshman. We need some help down in the first aid section. Is anyone here a doctor? They sound serious. I just came off a two-day swing shift. I don't need... My husband is a doctor over here! Oh, for... Yes, right here. I'm the doctor. Lead the way. Around 4 p.m., Dr. Harold Lanham left his seat in the crowd to go check on the injured boy. Lanham was likely surprised when he saw Sesums. His head was bloody, and large purple bruises were already spreading across the boy's face. Lanham inspected his skull, but he couldn't tell whether it had been fractured. Without the help of a real medical facility, there was nothing more he could do. So Lanham cleaned the finger-length gash above Sesum's ear, wrapped him in clean bandages, and headed back to catch the rest of the football game. You're back! Did they score again? And I missed it? Oh, cheer up, Harold. I know you love being a hero. Was everything all right? Some boy got his bell rung pretty bad. Dash in his head and everything. I think he'll be all right. Maybe serves him right for getting involved in that mess. Go! Go! That's a touchdown! Lanham checked back in on Charles Sessoms after the game. Texas A&M president T.O. Walton was already at the boy's bedside, holding his hand while Sessoms flickered in and out of consciousness. Lanham told Walton that Sessoms needed to be under hospital supervision, at least for the night. But once Sessoms got there, Lanham and his fellow doctors realized there was nothing they could do for him. 
He vomited up blood sometime after dinner time, and Lanham realized that the boy's skull almost certainly had been fractured by the blow. All he could do was give Charles Sessoms a bit of morphine to help him rest and heal. Then, after midnight, Lanham finally left the hospital and went to bed. He headed back to check in on Sessoms first thing the next morning. The boy's condition had gotten much worse throughout the night. At 9 a.m. on Sunday, October 31, 1926, Charles Sessoms died. Back so soon? That has to be a good sign. I'm sure he felt better after a good night. Harry? What's wrong? He's dead. Last night, I thought you Yesterday said- at the stadium, he seemed so big and broad-shouldered and tall, like a man. But there in the hospital bed, he was so tiny, so young. You did everything you could. I could have stayed with him. I didn't need to go back and finish the game. I, I-, I could have- There's no sense in that now. Look at me. Look at me. You're a good man, Harold Lanham. And a good doctor. There are things in this world that even you can't control. Let's get some food in you. The tragedy had already set in for Dr. Lanham, and it would only grow from there. By the time Charles Sessom's parents boarded a train in downtown Dallas and made a three-hour trip to visit their son, the boy was already dead. I tried to telephone from the hospital, but by that point you were already on your way. Please, accept my deepest sympathies. He was still a young man with so much life ahead of him. Oh, Charlie boy. Later that day, an inquest confirmed that Sessoms died from complications of his skull fracture caused by a party or parties unknown. And by the time the Sessoms family got their son's body back to Dallas and started prepping for the funeral on November 2nd, Texas A&M had launched an investigation to find out who, exactly, that unknown party might be, and how to bring them to justice. Up next, we follow the two colleges on their quest to find Charles Sessom's killer and a possible conspiracy by the Waco mayor to protect him. Listeners, I have a surprising treat for you. You know you can find love in a bar or on an app, Why not a podcast? In Blind Dating, the new Spotify original from Parcast, we're expanding the places you can meet your match with a twist you'll never see coming. Every Wednesday, YouTuber and host Tara Michelle introduces one hopeful single to two strangers in a voice-only call. Through a series of illuminating games and questions, the trio finds all the sweetness and awkwardness of a first date minus the distraction of appearances. But once our hopeful single chooses their match, the cameras are turned on, and it's either butterflies or goodbye. Blind Dating airs weekly with new episodes every Wednesday. You can find and follow Blind Dating free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some... The gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. 
With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. On November 2nd, 1926, the Texas A&M administration began an inquiry into the recent football stadium riot to uncover who was responsible for the murder of 24-year-old college senior Charles Sessoms. Unfortunately, it wasn't as easy as calling in a few witnesses. One by one, A&M officials questioned students who admitted to being involved in the riot on Saturday. But no one could put a name to Sessoms' killer. They could barely even come up with a clear description of him. He was short, tiny, a really small guy. Well, maybe Sessoms was just tall, you know, but he was stocky. He was definitely small. That baseball bat looked huge. Baseball bat? It was a club. It was a bat. It was a hunk of wood. But there was one piece of information that nearly every witness could agree on. Blue suit. Blue surge suit. He was wearing a blue suit. The investigation concluded with only a vague picture of Charles Sessom's killer and a handful of dead-end leads. It seemed like the Texas A&M administration was more interested in public relations and damage control than actually bringing a murderer to justice. So, on November 3rd, only a day after Sessom's was laid to rest in a Dallas cemetery, Baylor President Samuel Brooks headed to the A&M campus to meet with its president, T.O. Walton. Together, the two men tried to figure out a way to put this mess behind them. After 10 grueling hours of deliberation, the two presidents and their trusted senior officials agreed on a way to put the deadly riot behind them. They sat down and penned a joint statement together where they agreed to split responsibility for the tragedy between both schools equally. We are profoundly saddened, as are the student bodies and the faculties of both institutions, by the death of Cadet Lieutenant Sessoms, and sympathize deeply and sincerely with his bereaved family. Thank you. And with that, the two college presidents apparently felt satisfied. A football game had gotten a little out of hand on both sides, the friendly rivalry had turned to violence, and an unfortunate student had lost his life. It was both everyone's fault and nobody's fault. The men presumably thought that by sharing the blame, they could acknowledge what happened and move forward as friends. But when the statement hit their college campuses, it didn't cool down the A&M and Baylor rivalry at all. It pushed tensions to a whole new level. Just hours after the Baylor campus newspaper published the president's statements, Baylor students penned an angry rebuttal. They were furious that they should carry any of the blame at all. The riot was A&M's fault, plain and simple. And Baylor didn't want anything to do with them from now on. Baylor students are tired and disgusted with competing against a rival student body that disregards all points of honor, attacks women, runs gang-like over a few or one man, and seeks to bulldoze and browbeat a smaller student body by virtue of superior numbers and the mob spirit. We, the undersigned students of Baylor University, desire and urge a severance of all athletic relationships with A&M College of Texas. The petition was signed by nearly a third of the entire Baylor student body. 
the A&M students were quick to respond with their own letter, this time accusing the Baylor students of purposefully inciting the riot and even stockpiling clubs and weapons in their section of the stands before the game. But as the two colleges traded increasingly hostile letters in their school papers, one thing became clear. This wasn't about Charles Sessoms. The students at Baylor and A&M only seemed to care about which school was responsible for starting the riot. Sessoms was just collateral damage. The larger Waco community apparently felt the same way. After the first round of A&M interviews came up empty-handed, all discussions of finding Sessoms' killer faded fast. The local police never even opened an official murder investigation. But back in College Station, Texas, a group of A&M alumni still wanted answers. And if the Waco authorities weren't going to find them, then it was time to take matters into their own hands. So they pooled their resources and called up the infamous Pinkerton Detective Agency to look into Charles Sessom's death. On November 22, 1926, a Pinkerton detective named Ella Floyd Benedict pulled into Waco, Texas. Pinkerton was America's first private security and detective agency, with roots as far back as the Civil War. The 34-year-old Benedict was the latest in a long line of Pinkerton detectives who had rescued Abraham Lincoln, hunted Jesse James, and protected the Mona Lisa on transatlantic journeys. The death of a college student during a football game didn't seem like a particularly daunting assignment, but as Benedict made his way through Waco that morning, he had no idea that he'd stumble onto a cover-up that seemed to lead to the top of Waco's government. <sighs> Anything else you remember about Sesums and the riot? I heard he was tight. What? Tight. Blotto. Drunk. College boy drunk at a football game, hmm? Well, that's really something. I'm here to solve a murder, not uphold the president's war on liquor. Any idea who's spreading these salacious rumors? Mayor Connolly. <clears throat> Can you spell that for me? Wait, you mean like the mayor mayor of Waco? I heard him say it himself. <laughs> well now, that might actually be something. Waco Mayor Herschel Connolly had his own story about the riot, and it turned out he'd spent the last three weeks telling it to everyone who'd listen. According to the mayor, he had heroically run onto the field that day to break up the fight, and then personally witnessed the attack that killed Charles Sessoms. Benedict headed over to Conley's house on his first night in Waco, but the mayor's wife sent him away, saying that Conley was busy and couldn't see him. So bright and early the next morning, Benedict woke up and made his way to the mayor's office in downtown Waco. This time, Mayor Connolly agreed to speak to the detective. But it turned out that his memory of the riot was surprisingly different from all of the other witnesses Benedict had spoken to. Coffee? I'm set. Suit yourself. But as I was saying, Sessoms was loaded, completely drunk, and he started the fight himself. The Baylor boy was just defending himself. Defending himself with a club. Oh, 
Who's to say what those young men were thinking? Caught up in the heat of the moment, you know? Right. You say you got a good look at him, even down to the pattern on his tie. I assume that means you can identify him if you see him again? Well, it all happened so fast. I told you I didn't recognize him. Don't expect me to be able to pick him out of a Baylor lineup. You know how memory gets. If you didn't recognize him, how do you know he was from Baylor? What? Nothing. Benedict left the mayor's office on November 23rd with more questions than he had when he arrived. Multiple witnesses swore that Sessoms was sober during the riot, including the boy who had been with him that entire day. The claim that Sessoms had instigated the attack went against the other witness statements as well. If that was the case, then maybe Charles Sessoms' death wasn't a murder at all. It might have been self-defense. Or that was how Connolly wanted it to sound. The mayor was strangely evasive about the killer's identity. If the man could describe the boy right down to the pattern on his tie, he should have been able to recognize the killer if he saw him again. And it was strange that he knew the boy was a Baylor student, but claimed to have never met him before. These strange discrepancies raised questions about the mayor's sincerity. And only a few hours later, Benedict met a man in Waco who gave him an answer one that threw some serious complications into Benedict's supposedly easy case. You didn't hear it from me, but Earl down at the gas pump told me Sniper killed him. This Earl doesn't sound too bright. Sessoms died from a blow to the head, not a bullet. No, not a Sniper rifle, Sniper, the old Baylor football player. Pardon me if I'm not up on your old college lineups. Does Sniper have a name? Yeah, Hubert, Hubert Connolly. Did you say Connolly? As in Mayor Connolly? That's him. He's the mayor's third cousin. Coming up, Benedict's investigation leads him deep into the Waco mayor's family tree and possibly explains why the local police never even looked for Sesame's killer. Now back to the story. On Tuesday, November 23, 1926, Pinkerton private eye Ela Floyd Benedict stumbled upon a lead in Waco, Texas that shattered everything he thought he knew about the death of Charles Sessoms. If Benedict's new source was telling the truth, then there was a rumor spreading around town that a man named Hubert Sniper Connolly killed Sessoms, a man who also happened to be the Waco mayor's third cousin. One thing was clear. If he was going to follow the sniper lead, he needed to make sure he could trust his informant. So he headed back to the boy who first mentioned the sniper Connolly tip and asked him to put it in writing. But when Benedict asked him to sign an official witness statement, the boy refused. I know better than to stick my neck on the line for this one. Think again, pal. I'm not going after the mayor's own kin without hard evidence. Your statement would be a start. You told me. I know what I told you. If you want a real witness, go talk to Earl at the gas station. I'm just the messenger here. Yeah, yeah. Beat it, kid. With pleasure. And so, Benedict set out to find the gas station worker named Earl, who first started spreading Sniper Connolly's name around Waco. And two days later, on November 26th, he finally found him. But once again, Benedict hit a brick wall. Sure, I'm the one who told Rooks about Sniper. I didn't actually see him. 
What's that supposed to mean? I just heard someone say it was Sniper when I was leaving the game. Well then, who said it? Hmm. Guess I can't recall. Can't or won't? Oh, I'm up. Come back if you need an oil change. Benedict's big lead was crumbling around him. Benedict was still suspicious. There might be a reason that his sources had cold feet about coming forward. Maybe they were afraid of what could happen to someone who turned against the mayor and a beloved college football star in a town like Waco. So he decided to go find Hubert Sniper Connolly himself. Yeah? Mr. Connolly, I'm Detective Benedict. You must be the gumshoe asking around town about me. Glad you decided to quit the gossip and come straight to the source. Come on in. But the minute Benedict saw the former Baylor football star, he likely knew he'd made a mistake. The A&M investigation had spoken to witness after witness who all said the same thing. The killer was short, and Hubert Connolly was at least 5'9". Hubert did tell Benedict that he was at the Cotton Palace Stadium during the riot. He said he even went down to the field to try and help the mayor break it up. But it wasn't enough to make him a real suspect. And since even the people who first started these rumors refused to stand behind them, Benedict was forced to let it go. By the middle of December, the Pinkerton detective had been in Waco for nearly a month, and he was no closer to solving the mystery than he was when he arrived. Benedict continued to interview Baylor students in hopes that one of them would let a piece of information slip that would push his case forward. But instead, he just heard the same vague description of the killer. At least, until he met Ralph Wolf. Wolf was Baylor University's athletic director, and he'd been on the field during the riot. When Detective Benedict sat down with Wolf on December 19th, the man began by telling him the same story he'd heard over and over since the investigation began. According to Wolf, he saw a man in a blue suit hit Sesams with what seemed to be a wooden chair leg. But the next thing Wolf said stopped Benedict cold. There's a rumor going around the player's locker room that Sniper Conley is the one who did it. Yeah, I've heard that one. I already talked to Hubert, didn't pan out. Who? No, not Hubert. His cousin, Edwin, the other sniper. Are you saying there are two Sniper Connollys? Of course. They call him Little Sniper on account of him being short. Maybe Benedict's suspicions about Mayor Connolly were right after all. He'd just been after the wrong Connolly. Benedict quickly wrapped up his interview with Wolf and headed straight to Ed Connolly's house that same afternoon. This could finally be the break he'd been waiting for. Ed Connolly fit the witness descriptions almost perfectly. He was in his early 20s, around 140 pounds, and roughly 5 foot 5. And that wasn't all. Yeah, I was there. I ran down right as the riot was breaking up. Doesn't mean I did it though, does it? And yeah, I was wearing my blue suit that day. I love that suit. Why do you ask? All the pieces were falling into place, but Benedict still didn't have hard evidence tying Ed Conley to the murder. He at least needed an eyewitness to confirm that Ed was the killer. On December 30th, 1926, Detective Benedict contacted a witness from the riot named Y.C. Carlisle in Waxahachie, Texas, 
asking if Carlisle would come to Waco and take a look at Ed. A positive identification would finally give him something concrete to act on. It's unclear why, exactly, Benedict went to Carlisle instead of any of the other numerous witnesses who he'd spoken to during his five-week investigation. Maybe Carlisle was one of the only people who said they'd gotten a look at the murderer's face. Or maybe being an out-of-towner meant that he wasn't afraid of whatever retaliation might come from the Waco mayor's office. But unfortunately, Benedict never got a chance to meet with Carlisle. On December 31st, the detective received a mysterious message from his bosses, ordering him to end his investigation at once. Pinkerton was closing the case on Charles Sessoms. They ordered him to leave Waco and return to the Pinkerton field office in Dallas right away for a new assignment. There's no clear explanation for why Pinkerton abruptly stopped the murder investigation right as Benedict found a break in the case. It's possible that the group of A&M alumni who hired the detective agency only paid them through the end of 1926. Or maybe someone realized that Benedict was closing in on the truth and was powerful enough to put an end to his entire investigation before he got there. But even if Charles Sessom's killer was never found, the impact of his death rippled out for years to come. Around the same time Benedict left Waco for good, in December 1926, Baylor President Samuel Brooks and President Walton at Texas A&M signed a pact to put an end to the football rivalry that had spiraled out of control. In consideration of the strained athletic relation now existing between the student bodies of Baylor University and A&M College, we, the presidents of the said two institutions, hereby cancel all existing contracts heretofore made by these schools. We appeal to the public that it help us to grow a better feeling between the two student bodies to the end that at some future time, a renewal of games may be made. In the spring of 1927, as A&M's senior class prepared to graduate without Charles Sessoms, the university's yearbook printed a brief tribute to their fallen classmate. He died, quote, in line of duty, the page read, along with a photo of Sessoms and a poem promising that Sessoms will always live in Aggie Halls of Fame. But, of course, the two schools eventually forgot about Charles Sessoms, In 1932, Baylor and Texas A&M even began playing football together again. The college football rivalry that was almost as old as the sport itself was back. By then, all the students involved in the 1926 riot, likely including the killer himself, had graduated and moved on to families and careers, and the unsolved murder of Charles Sessoms became nothing more than a sad footnote in Texas football history. Ultimately, when we lay out all the facts, I think that one of the Connolly boys likely killed Charles Sessoms, and that Mayor Connolly protected them from criminal charges. The mayor was so evasive and strange in his interview with the private detective. It's also suspicious that his police force never even opened an investigation. I think you're right. Ed Connolly, or Little Sniper, fits the killer's description perfectly, right down to the blue suit. It's unclear how involved Mayor Connolly was, but it definitely seems like he knew more than he was telling. 
But no matter who killed Charles Sessoms, the true cause of his death was the violent football rivalry itself. That 1926 halftime brawl wasn't the first riot between sports fans. It certainly wasn't the last, but no game is worth the price of a life. And Charles Sessoms will always be remembered as the tragic casualty of fandom gone too far. Thanks again for tuning in to Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with a new episode. For more information on the 1926 death of Charles Sessoms, amongst the many sources we used, we found Battle of the Brazos, a Texas football rivalry, a riot, and a murder by T.G. Webb, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by River Donahue, with writing assistance by Giles Hovseth. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Bill Butts, Tiana Camacho, Joe Hernandez, Eddie Lee, and Rebecca Thomas. It stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. Hey, listeners, don't forget to follow Blind Dating for a fun twist on a classic setup. YouTuber and host Tara Michelle can't wait to help hopeful singles meet their match. Search Blind Dating and follow free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.